Those were giants on earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. And when I think about the difficulty in putting these blocks together and how hard it is to sew this kind of a quilt, and I think about his life, that's why I kind of paralleled the two, was that his life was very hard. It started out to be charmed and easy. It started out to be blessed, and people would say, oh, you are just so lucky. And then it took a turn. But sometimes it's not always what it seems. An all-but-guaranteed future in the NFL. A million-dollar paycheck with her son's name on it. 18 surgeries, missing medical records, a four-quarter amputation, her son in the backyard flipping the pages of his Bible as he lovingly ministers to Christians, his faith in Jesus Christ unshakable. Such a high mountaintop and such a desolate pit. It's not always what it seems is right. To fully understand the way things once seemed for Brenda, we need to start back at those charmed and easy tumbling blocks that she mentioned about Joe's life. I'm associate producer Morris Chestnut. Welcome to episode two of GFC Productions' presentation of Jesus and Big Joe. He, uh, he always thought he was strong, even as a baby. He actually, this is quite a story, he got really mad because me and his aunt were stickling him. He was really little too. I, 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 he must have been, he must have been like three, maybe four. He got really mad. We were holding him down, tickling. So he got away from us and he went and he took the toilet seat and he banged it like this and ripped off the toilet seat. It was the funniest thing ever. My childhood was, um, it was great. You know, I had amazing parents that, that loved me, that were invested in my life. They sacrificed for me. Big Joe was raised in a loving household. I know because there are plenty of examples like the one Joe just mentioned. One of those examples was the fact that Brenda had meticulously stored and cataloged anything that may have represented an achievement in her young son's life. I call it her time capsule, and it contained everything. But in every picture I saw, Big Joe looked like a happy kid, jolly almost, with a contagious smile the corners of his mouth rising so high up into his chubby childhood cheeks that his eyes were forced into an involuntary squint. It was the kind of smile that makes you smile just by looking at it. But through the squint, through the slight crack left between his eyelids, I was able to spot the distinct and ever-present spark of a charming little troublemaker. He didn't get trouble, but his teachers would say, like he was the one that would go to open house, and they would say... He's our little instigator. <laughs> he was a um, big kid. So as a big kid, you kind of stand out. He was really big. Like he was double the size of most children. Like, you know, his two cousins went to the same preschool with him. And he would be like, okay, we're going off the rope today. Come on, guys. We're all three of us going to leave the rope at the same time. And we get the call. The aunts and myself, you know, Joey's like taking the kids and encourage them to go off the rope or he's locked his cousin in the bunny cage you know <laughs> so he was a handful when he was little but he was always sweet like he was sweet but he he was funny 
Despite the fact that Big Joe was the type of kid that might try to provide a little comedy relief during the daily algebra lesson, clearly the priority in the McGuire household was to raise their children up to be good people. It was important to, to, to be an honest person, to be a good person, to, to do the right thing. Brenda refers to these lessons, being an honest person, being a good person, and doing the right thing, as the rules of life. To help those lessons stick, Brenda and Joe Sr. introduced faith to their children early on. Yeah, growing up, it was, you know, the Catholic Church, and, and it was just more religion, go on Sunday morning and uh, kind of fulfill that requirement. And, and I had it timed, so every phase of it, I knew about how much longer it was till we got to leave and go out to breakfast, and that's really what I was looking forward to. Of course Big Joe wanted breakfast. You heard what his mom said. Her son was huge, naturally athletic and big. He was pretty gifted, yeah. He, he excelled, and, and uh, he's a pitcher. He was very wild. People were afraid to kind of come up to him because he was still twice as big as the rest of them, and he's throwing this fastball at him, you know. So that was a little bit scary. I can see Brenda now, sitting in the stands, a proud but nervous mom wiping her sweaty palms on her jeans as she prayed her massive son's fastball wouldn't deck the tiny batter standing at the plate. We spoke about youth baseball instead of football because growing up, Big Joe was banned from the local youth football leagues. They said he was too big, that he would pose a danger to the other kids if he played. But those natural gifts came with some additional baggage. Because of his size, even as a kid, there were always expectations. Growing up, I was, like you said, the biggest kid. And, and everybody had always told me, like, oh, you're going to be a football player. You're going to play for Notre Dame or, you know, all these things. When I read through Joe's eighth grade yearbook from South Junior High in Anaheim, I could see that even the junior high staff was already envisioning his future. Congratulations on bringing your grade up. I'm sure I'll be seeing you somewhere high in the limelight in the future. Miss Swanson wrote. So evident were Big Joe's athletic gifts that the vision of him as a professional football player had crystallized before he had ever actually played in the game. But once he was able to take the field as a freshman at Servite High School, when all the weight limits and size restrictions had been thrown out the window, he didn't waste time proving the expectations had been well-founded. In the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I went to stay at my um, uncle's house out in North Carolina. And I went to a football camp at Wake Forest. And it was all like seniors in high school and they were there practicing, basically trying to get a scholarship or show what they can do. And, and I went there and, and, and I was by far like the best athlete out of all the linemen there. And they offered me a scholarship right there. And, and, and so that was really when I knew like, you know, football is gonna be my ticket. What Wake Forest was really trying to do by offering Joe a scholarship at such a young age was beat the other powerhouse college football schools to the punch. They were trying to take Big Joe off the market before he could be discovered, like buying low on a stock that you know is a sure thing. Big Joe's football career is best memorialized in the crown jewel of his mom's time capsule, a thick, leather-bound scrapbook that holds dozens of meticulously crafted pages. Brenda's love for her son radiates from these pages, each one a unique work of art. For Brenda, these memories are grand. 
you know, when that was happening, it was fun. You know, I mean, we had our tailgate parties, and it was like our, our, our whole life going from one sport to another. He has a sister, she played sports too, and so between the two, it was uh, always at one game or into the other, and uh, we enjoyed it. It was a good life. While Big Joe realized early on that his gifts would reap the biggest return on a football field, his athleticism was the type that transcends the boundaries of sport. I, I mean, Joe, he was just one of those guys, as far as athletes go, that he immediately looked different, ran different, was more athletic, was stronger. Um, there's those rare guys that you see playing basketball or football that you're just like, that guy's a cut above everyone else. Even if they work hard, they're not going to be as good as that guy. Joe's friend Steve was a basketball player at Servite. He was a couple years ahead of Joe, and the two weren't close. But word about the new freshman offensive tackle had quickly spread through the halls of the upperclassmen. Most football players, when they get onto a basketball court, they can't really handle themselves, the, the movement and the, the pace. But Joe never had a problem with that. I think back then, I'm guessing he was about 6'6", and you know, just big guy, and he was dunking the ball too, on top of it. Unfortunately for Brenda, the very same angst that she used to feel at those Little League games followed her right into the high school bleachers. When he played basketball, oh my gosh, that was scary for me because I would be watching it from the stands. He would like jump up and hang on the rim and he would box people around. He was, I'm like, this is not a contact sport, Joe. Like, this is basketball, you know. You'd hear the rim and I'm like, oh, we're going to have to pay for that. You know, <laughs> I got real into lifting weights and eating right and got in really good shape. And my junior year, I was really good. I found the program for Joe's homecoming game that year. The entire cover was dedicated to him. An ear-to-ear -ear smile stretched across his face. The endless hours of weightlifting and practice had melted the baby fat from his cheeks. So the forced squint of his childhood was a distant memory now. But this made the unmistakable spark radiating from his eye even more noticeable. His junior year in high school, the University of Wisconsin beat Stanford 17-9 in the Rose Bowl and finished the year as the number four ranked team in the country. Brian White was the offensive coordinator for Wisconsin then, and at the time, Wisconsin's offensive linemen were being picked into the NFL draft year in and year out like clockwork. When Big Joe was named the Los Angeles Times Offensive Lineman of the Year, Coach White told the paper that Joe was, quote, the best high school lineman I have ever seen. In football in high school, you get letters, and a lot of them are questionnaires asking you for your information for the school. And so I was getting a whole lot of those and these letters written by coaches, and I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to them. When it comes to college football, talent equals wins and wins equal money. Because of the financial ramifications, college football recruiting is a bona fide industry. In 2018, the University of Georgia alone spent $2.6 million recruiting high school football players. That same year, 14 other college football programs also spent over a million dollars. One of the things college football programs spend all that money on is recruiting services. In order to cast the widest possible net for spotting and signing elite football players like Big Joe, colleges farm out scouting to independent contractors. Tom Lemming is a recruiting service legend, 
and the author of the yearly Lemming Report. Joe's senior year, the Lemming Report was a quarter of an inch thick, and in it, he gushed about Joe. He has size and agility that cannot be taught. And called him, quote, one of the nation's premier offensive line prospects. Another recruiting service called 24-7 Sports assigns an overall score to each of the top recruits in the country. Big Joe has one of the highest overall scores of all time, higher than the overall scores given to future NFL stars like Joey Bosa, Aaron Hernandez, Nama Kinsu, Matt Leinart, Des Bryant, Andrew Luck, Amari Cooper, Jamarcus Russell, and Terrell Suggs. Super Prep Magazine, which bills itself as America's recruiting magazine, did a write-up on Big Joe when he was named to their All-American team. In it, several Division I football coaches were quoted. One told the magazine that on the football field, Joe can do whatever he wants. Already envisioning Joe's future in the National Football League, the author himself said Joe, quote, should be playing on Sundays, referring to the day on which most NFL teams play their games. The word on Big Joe was out, and the recruiting wagons began to circle. I'd come home and every night there'd be at least one or two coaches calling and wanting to talk. I remember it was pretty cool though, talking on the phone to like Lou Holtz and Bobby Bowden and some of those guys. You know, the phone would ring. My mom's like, there's a coach. I'm like, I don't want to talk to a coach. And my mom's like, it's Lou Holtz. I'm like, Notre Dame? That was kind of exciting. The year he was calling, Bobby Bowden was fresh off winning a national championship at Florida State. But it was the call from Lou Holtz that must have sent shockwaves through the McGuire household. Holtz also had a national championship under his belt. But more importantly, at the time of his call, he was the head coach of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. The future many had envisioned for him as a child was within Big Joe's reach. But Holtz and Bowden weren't alone in their pursuit. Many of the nation's biggest college football programs saw Joe as a surefire NFL lineman so he started receiving scholarship offers from the biggest programs in the country. All the good football schools, Florida State, Notre Dame, Colorado, Nebraska, you name it. It was kind of cool having people like me. I did like the attention of, of being good at something and having people like me and, and, and being wanted by people. That feeling of being wanted molded Joe's identity as a young man. Yeah, it wasn't fair really my senior year. You know, I was six, almost 6'5", six about 285 pounds and 9 or 10% body fat. I was uh, a guy that could be playing college football, playing high school football, and it really was easy for me. I think if they didn't have that rule in the NFL where you have to be out of school for two years or play for two years before you can go, Joe would have probably just made the jump straight from high school into the NFL. These were the ones that were sown early, the charmed and easy tumbling blocks of Big Joe's life. At the time, it was an open secret that USC's weakness was its offensive line. The team needed Big Joe. Andy was a local celebrity, so the coaches pulled out all the stops. USC's head coach at the time was Paul Hackett, and he was personally authoring letters to Big Joe. The letters say things like, There is no one we are recruiting, Joe, that is more important to rebuilding the heritage of USC football than you. You are the cornerstone of the foundation we are building for a national championship in the very near future. College coaches don't say this stuff to every player they're recruiting, 
but signing a player like Big Joe could change a team's future. And a coach's. The itinerary for Big Joe's official visit to USC read like this. Start at the Los Angeles Regal Biltmore Hotel. Move to a reception in the Imperial Suite. Then depart for dinner in the Skybox at Staples Center, where the Lakers play their home games. I committed to USC right away in between my junior and senior year. And USC was close. I thought they were cooler than UCLA. You know, that had cooler colors, and I didn't want to wear grandma blue. <laughs> and, uh, and I wanted my parents to be able to come to my games. There were many reasons why Big Joe signed with USC. But the main one was this. He had a grand vision for the future of the USC football program. I was looking at it like, hey, I could go there and I could play right away. I could contribute. We had a great top five recruiting class that year in the nation. And I was looking at it like, man, we win a couple of those games that we should have won. And we're competing for the Pac-10 title. You know, playing in the Rose Bowl. And so those were kind of the, the expectations going in that, yeah, you know, I'm going to compete, I'm going to start, and we're going to be good. By the time his senior year in high school came to an end, Big Joe's football resume read like this. Super Prep All-American, Prep Star All-American, Parade All-American, and the list goes on and on. But after his regular season ended, there was one final game left on his high school schedule. It was the California Bowl. It was the All-Star team from California playing the All-Star team from Florida. You look back at the, how many of those guys went on to have long careers in the NFL, and that, there was quite a few. One of those guys was Vince Wilfork, who lined up across from Joe as a defensive lineman for the Florida team. Wilfork would go on to play over a decade in the NFL, becoming a five-time Pro Bowl selection, a first-team All-Pro, and a two-time Super Bowl champion. The roster listed the high school senior at 6'2", 325 pounds. We played at the, uh, the Rose Bowl, and I think it was like a couple of weeks before training camp started at USC. And we played that. The game was great. We won. Big Joe's high school football career had ended in storybook fashion with a victory over a roster packed with future NFL draft picks. Like so many around him, Big Joe was certain that the next tumbling blocks of his life had already been sown. To me, it was a foregone conclusion. Like I was gonna go play a couple of years in college and be in the NFL and make a whole bunch of money. And I was gonna have all these people following me around, treating me like I was the king, and, and that was just how my life was going to be. It's about 5.30 in the morning on a Wednesday, and I'm parked outside the McGuire house. Brenda and Joe Sr. are still asleep inside, so I text Big Joe to let him know I'm here. He greets me at the door wearing a black button-down shirt, his right sleeve pulled outside in. After some experimenting, this is how he prefers to wear his shirts now. This way, he explained, the empty sleeve doesn't dangle sloppily at his side. 
He leads me down the hall to his room. It's a tight space, his bed occupying about 80% of the real estate. Big Joe's grandfather was a carpenter, and beyond his bed rests one of Joe's prized possessions, a hand-carved wooden desk his grandfather built for him. There's a chair situated between the dresser and the desk. Joe squeezes into it, pulls out a handy shelf from the desk, rests his Bible on it, and begins to read. Lexi, Big Joe's dog, who's a mix of Chihuahua and several other small breeds, is the only other one awake to keep us company. She's heavier than she used to be, but she still manages to jump up onto the bed and diligently hold guard over Joe as he studies his Bible into dawn. They seem an odd couple, Big Joe and this little dog, but they have a special bond. It's the type of bond that only cellmates that had served a long sentence together could understand. And that's Lexi. She's my little princess. She was one of my best friends. She was right there with me going through all this stuff, losing my arm. Weren't you? After a half hour passes in silence, Big Joe shares a lesson with me. You know, in the Bible, David, he's like a type of Christ. And I love this verse right here in in chapter 22, verse 23. And David says this to, to Abiathar. He says, Abide thou with me. Fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life, but with me thou shalt be in safeguard. And that's pretty awesome, because like I said, David, he's this type of Christ, and and the enemy, the same enemy that, that sought to destroy Jesus, he's seeking to destroy us. And so it's like as if Jesus is saying, fear not, for he that, that sought my life is seeking after your life. But with me, thou shalt be in safeguard. So as long as we're abiding in Christ and with Christ, we, like Abiathar, will be safe, will be protected from the enemy. So it's pretty cool. It's a little after six now, and Big Joe closes his Bible and moves to the kitchen to cook some breakfast. Eggs over easy and toast. He efficiently navigates the kitchen as we talk about our excessive coffee intake in the recent Packers game. Just as Big Joe had so easily been able to acquire new skills on the football field, he's done the same to adapt to living life with his offhand. His movements are streamlined and precise. He doesn't miss a beat. After breakfast, Big Joe brushes his teeth, fills his backpack with supplies, and heads out the front door. this morning, Big Joe is doing what he's done every morning for the past six months, and he'll do for another three more. He's walking to the bus stop to catch a 7.30 a.m. ride from Anaheim to Costa Mesa, where he's a student in both a Bible college and a pastor school. felt like we were partnering with him in order to help him just really excel in the ministry that he was already doing. And he has such a big heart for needy people. Even in our conversations at pastor school, nothing changed. He would still be telling us stories about how he had gone out and shared the gospel with people, the nights of witnessing and evangelism. The architect of the pastor school at the time was a man named Pastor John. He spoke with me about his largest student. I had assigned a class project, and their project was to go 
where a lot of the homeless are at. And Joe just got his group of people to go and to pass out homemade sandwiches and to share the love of Jesus with the people that are in need. But Joe's group, he wasn't the original leader that was assigned for the group, but there was something about Joe's personality that without usurping authority or, or convincing other people that he should be the leader, Joe became kind of the team captain for their group. There were some people that it was the very first time they've ever done anything like that to actually go up to strangers and to do evangelism. But Joe was able to motivate them to do that. And they felt under Joe's leadership that they could. And I, I remember thinking at that moment for a guy that has that big of a heart for the poor like that, I knew that this guy was more than just a textbook Christian. This guy was wanting to live out the things that he was learning. He was the guy that talked a lot about the Bible. He was the guy that talked a lot about Jesus. And we never thought of him, you know, after that first week as the guy with just one arm. We connected him with bigger stuff. His life is tethered to greater stuff. For Joe, once the story was out about how he lost his arm, that became a road sign to Jesus. Next time on episode three of GFC Productions presentation of Jesus and Big Joe. Going into my sophomore year, I was in incredible shape and I was starting, you know, I was dominating. And I remember flying out, playing in New Jersey and in front of 90,000 people. We're like number five in the nation at that point. Today, I'm not sure if I would recommend to people or not to let their children play football just because of the injuries and stuff that Joe sustained. The younger you are, the more likely it is that it'll dislocate again. And he's like, surgically, if I were to try to fix this, there's a 25% chance you'll never walk again. They like collapsed in the parking lot and they found me. At that point, like football was my life. Football was from a, a Christian point of view, an idol to me. It was who I was. And, and all of a sudden that was taken away. Jesus and Big Joe is brought to you by GFC Productions. For updates, behind the scenes content and special offers, follow GFC Productions on Facebook and Instagram at, at Jesus and Big Joe and on Twitter at, at Jesus and Big Joe. I'm Morris Chestnut, the associate producer. The producer and writer is Kyle Hogan. Be sure to subscribe to Jesus and Big Joe on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. Become eligible for giveaways of exclusive merchandise like gear signed by me, associate producer Morris Chestnut, by leaving a review of Jesus and Big Joe on one of the podcast platforms and emailing a screenshot of it to gfcpromotions at protonmail.com. Only reviews left within three weeks of the original launch date are eligible. The score for Jesus and Big Joe is performed by Aaron Hill. 
All I Have is Christ, originally written by Jordan Coughlin. Copyright 2008. Sovereign Grace Praise BMI. Sovereign Grace Music is a division of Sovereign Grace Churches. All rights reserved. The song was used by permission. Administrated worldwide at www.capitalcmgpublishing.com. Excluding the UK, which is administrated by Integrity Music, part of the David C. Cook family. You can visit Sovereign Grace Music at www.sovereigngracemusic.com. Audio editing, mixing, and mastering was done by Resonate Recordings. Visit GFC Productions' website at www.gfclife.com and subscribe to their email list for updates, information, discounts, deals, and more. A special thank you to Calvary Chapel, Sovereign Grace Music, the McGuire family, and everyone who made it possible to tell the story of Jesus and Big Joe.